I'm going to read the scripture this morning, and it's from the book of James, so if you have a Bible or a phone and you want to follow along, we're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every perfect, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So I'll be really honest with you. I remember Amelia's birth and I remember Ezra's birth really well. I don't remember Lucy's birth that well. And I know that's really awful. (laughs) But I'm going to tell you a story. Um, when Megan was pregnant with Amelia and we went in to, and she was in labor and we go in and we are like young kids, don't know what we're doing. Get in there, just telling us what to do. They're telling us how to do this. We've taken some class, which by the way, nothing prepares you whatsoever. And I'm a guy saying this, nothing prepared me for what was about to happen. No class can prepare you for having a kid. And we go into the hospital and everybody's just like, you're just like starting to just ring and everything's getting distant. And you're like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like completely helpless. And, and it's coming. It's barreling forward. Megan's going to have a baby. And we get, we get far into the process when it's late at night and Megan decides like, I just, I, if this is what it's going to be and there's way more of this, I needed the epidural. I'm getting the epidural. She gets the epidural, right? And the guy comes in. She can't, the way he gave it to her, she just, it just completely, the lower half of her body completely gone, right? Just like couldn't feel it. She was almost ready to give birth. They give her the epidural and completely suspends it for like hours and hours. About four in the morning, we're in that delivery room and it's the time. And I swear, it felt like, it felt like a scene from the movie Alien. If any of you guys have seen Alien, there was like a spotlight. It was like a dark room. It was just like grisly. And I was just like, oh my, like what is going on? And then Amelia is born. And suddenly it's like, ah, you know, like here's like Simba being raised by Rafiki, right? And it's just like the holy birth, like of a prince or princess, right? And I was just like, slow motion. This is what it's like to have a child who will inherit the throne, or in our case, be the princess of our life, right? The person that that is, the inheritance is coming. And it's just, it's so mesmerizing. But fast forward, age four, by the way, I've asked permission to tell these stories. 
We find candy wrappers hidden around our house, behind a couch, under a cushion, tucked in the most insidious places. I have still found, I have cleaned my house this year and found candy wrappers hidden by my daughter, right? Just, just obsessed with sugar, has to have it. The hunger is real. I will do what I need to get it. Deceive who I need to deceive. Original sin is real, right? Original sin is real. I know it's a bad Christian joke, but the reality is, like, I believe in original sin. I believe that we go about our lives trying, because of the nature of our bodies, to satisfy our hungers. Now, why am I telling a birth story? Well, because James is telling a birth story of a very similar nature here. He's actually telling two birth stories. And one of the birth stories he's telling is a horrific spotlight on an alien coming out of your body, right? It is truly grisly. When a person is tempted and he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire when he has conceived gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, that brings forth death. That is a dark image of a birth. But he also gives another vision a wonderful vision of a birth. And he says in verse 18, God out of his own will will bring us forth, will birth us by the word of truth. Which by the way, when it's used in the New Testament, those words word of truth always mean the gospel. The story of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. We will be birthed by the gospel that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures that we shall be like Simba, raised up, full, by the way, not just of dignity and honor, but responsibility to inherit a throne. But part of the reason that story still sticks with me, the story of it could go both ways, a, a human is capable, right? Try as we might, we become the monsters we hate, don't we? That alien vision of the birth, that's inside of us. James says that creature, that monster, is ready to take over any one of us. And it's fueled by desire. I've said a few times in the series, uh, a theologian named James K.A. Smith says it's not intellect that drives us, right? For the last 300 years, we believed Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, we're brains on a stick. It's our intellect. It's all about, we, we just, education is just feeding things straight into your brain, right? But he says, no, we are fundamentally creatures fueled by desire. That's what we, we become what we want. And by seeking what we want. The ironic and tragic thing about human existence is we can also often become what we hate. Intellectually, we don't want to become it, but our desires, our hungers are too strong. And so we become even the thing we hate. What do we turn into when we do that? The smartest, the most ambitious become the biggest hypocrites because they can control the image, but they can't control the hunger. And as we grow, as any wise person grows, we become both enslaved in some ways to our desires, if left to our own ends, and we also become afraid of them. Because to be honest, we don't really know what we want. 
Like when you pick a choice, there's always FOMO. There's always the fear of missing out. There's always the sense of like, this thing was nice, but I actually have this latent sense of disappointment because I had to make a choice. I actually don't know what I want. Have you ever been on a vacation and you like get all the stuff? You, you get on the plane, you get the luggage, you get finally you get to the hotel room. And now like all of that like doing kind of just like settles for a second. And you have like that moment where you have to like look at your partner, your friend, your spouse, your family and be like, what are we going to do now? You know, like we're here. What, what are we going to do? And that the reality, the hardest part of that moment is you don't really know what you want to do. You came to chase happiness and then you got there and now you're like kind of afraid. Like, am I going to make the choice that's going to make this a fun trip, a happy trip? Because we're chasing fulfillment. But oftentimes we just don't know. There's just too much pressure in the moment. There's too much expectation and it actually cripples us and it kind of ruins the moment. The point I'm trying to make is that as creatures fueled by desire, as we get through our life, we realize our desires are not fulfilled. The things we most deeply yearn for do not come true the way we want them to. And there's a deep yearning that grows as we realize some of us, those of us in, our, in this room that proclaim Jesus, that say, I believe in the Christ, have to say what James is saying about our birth that it must come from the outside. Out of God's own will, he brought us forth by the gospel. That all the meaning that matters in our life actually has to come from outside of ourselves into us for us to have the meaning that is true and good. So nothing James says in this text will make any sense. It won't be desirable or doable without first understanding that it requires us to pass through the cross. Because at the heart of the gospel is the cross. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Full stop. Forgiveness of sins. That's a thing. That's a true statement. But he also tells us that we will participate in his death. The gospel journey is a journey of life, death, and resurrection, and it's our journey too. So I have just a couple, just one actual basic illustration here of these two deaths and two births that James is outlining. Okay, The first birth and death is one we don't choose. It's just the physical birth. Nobody chooses when or where they're born or how. And... Death is coming for everybody. There's no choice in that first, that first birth and death. The second realm, though, the spiritual realm is chosen. And what James lies out, lays out here is that it's actually first a death and then a birth. It's first a death into a new birth. That's what you choose as the Christian. The gospel is in reverse order. You are not born again to die. We don't, we don't die in the same way, right? There's no eternal death for Christians. So it's flipped. We actually die and then are born again. How does that work? A lot of Christians, it's a common misunderstanding, I think, in Christianity 
that Christianity is a lottery ticket to heaven, right? It's just give me the ticket. I want the ticket because I want eternal life. And that sounds great. Okay, yeah, I'll say whatever. I'm going to go live forever. Sign me up. Give me the new birth to an eternal life. Great. Now it's 1130. Now get me to lunch. That, that, that is an operating way that we think about our faith if we're not careful. But that's not the biblical gospel. And that's because that our life is not about avoiding death. It's actually about facing death and traveling through it. As Christians, we actually choose to rush into an early death that lies at the heart of the gospel. And this death is to die to our own desire and to be born into the desires of Jesus. This has both redemptive repercussions for ourselves and our neighbors and leads to a new life. That's what James calls the crown of life. And what he means by crown is not a, a kingly crown. This is like an Olympian laurels, right? This is like you've won the race. You've received the crown. But the, but the messaging so often that we'll hear, especially in the media-saturated Christian message, is, you know what sells better than death to desire? No death to desire. You know what sells better is to say, you can have it all. And Christianity allows you to have it all plus eternal life. And that message is sold a lot. Jesus died for your sins, say a prayer, get baptized, believe he is your savior, and basically that's it. Embrace the gift of eternal life as a Christian, as a ticket out of death. Now, I want to challenge that whole notion just for a second. Just think with me for a second. Okay, if that was the whole gospel, I want to ask you this question. Who wouldn't want eternal life if they want everything in this life too? If I had been fueled by my hungers... And I want it all. Wouldn't I want it all forever? We just have tons of selfish people running around in heaven. And that sounds pretty toxic to me. That sounds like a pretty toxic place to have people just running around trying to get whatever they want all the time for all eternity. And of course, that's not what heaven is. Our desire for the afterlife is not what gets us the afterlife. That's just the ultimate mountaintop cry for ourselves. That's all that is. James actually warns against this kind of desire. He says in verse 14 and 15, every person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The desire for me all the time into eternity will bring certain death. Now, this image of, the, of sin birthing inside of us and leading us to death is one that I sat with for a while. And I thought, how do we do that? Because some of, some of you are saying, yeah, John, the eternal life thing doesn't even matter. My life's hard enough right now. I'm not even thinking about that. All I'm thinking about is like today's really hard and I've blown it already and I don't know how to live my life and I'm suffering and I go to sleep at night and here's how my desires manifest. I, I manifest bitterness and I baby it in my womb at night. 
and I care for it and I raise it and I go, that bitterness, oh yeah, I don't get what I want. My life is so unfair. You know, this person was so mean to me. You know, I, I just have it so bad. God has forgotten about me. And we raise these children in our bellies in the late hours alone as we descend into depression Stroking a desire for a life we don't have is to become pregnant and heavy. And that will come out eventually, maybe in nine months time, as sin. You will manifest all of those things that you're growing inside of you as sin. And the problem is when we start to grow those things inside of us, they actually become part of our identity. We begin to say, yeah, uh, that fear that I have, that fear that I have about what's going to happen to me, it's now actually a part of me. I've actually built my life around it. I've spent money on it. I've built friendships of people who feel the same way. Like I have created a whole identity around my desire for myself. And it's hard to let it go because it actually requires a death to let go of that thing you hold on to that's giving you a reason to be the way you are. So for instance, like a victim mentality does this to us, right? When we say it's somebody else's fault that I'm the way I am. To actually let go of that. Now we don't have a reason anymore and it's really painful. And when you let go and when you say, okay, I, 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 John, I want to let the desires for myself die. I want to let my desire for security that's just making me paranoid. I want, to, I want the desire that I have for comfort that's making me spend so much money on myself. Or I want the, the thinking that I have that's always about me and how things are going to affect me. I want to be more loving and caring for other people, but I just constantly feel envious and I feel like I'm left out. I want all of those things. How do I get them? I'm telling you, it's going to be a fight because those desires have become fully grown. It's like you have a baby of that desire. It's going to be awful to let it go. And that's how our desires lie to us. They lie to us out of self-preservation. They don't want to go. They don't want to get out of there. Satan wants those desires in you. He wants that selfishness to become part of your identity. And he wants you to not even be able to see it. Jesus had a parable about this. He said, he said, look, when we are running on our own survival, when we're running with the self-focus of I, the most important thing in my life is for me to survive. And by survive, I mean this. I get to do whatever I want that's going to make me feel secure. Jesus had a parable. He said this. He said, a land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So this, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The moral of Jesus' story is this, is to tend to the body above the soul is to foster a self, a false sense of security. 
look, you might say this guy had all the security. He had plentiful crops. He had a barns already. He just wanted bigger barns. That's not what he thought. That's not what he thought. He thought, I'm not secure enough. I need more. I, I secured the next year of my life. I need to secure all the way to my retirement. Just one year ahead isn't good enough anymore for me. How many people in this room, you don't have to raise your hand, just think this. How many people would consider them wealthy? Consider themselves wealthy. Very few of us consider ourselves wealthy because wealthy is always the people above us. The people above us are always the wealthy ones. I heard a story this week about a guy who owned a yacht and could have food delivered from anywhere in the world the next morning for him. And, and his son asked him, are you, do you, do you think of yourself as wealthy? And he goes, no, because I'm not wealthy. Because <laughs> he's comparing himself to Bill Gates. He's comparing himself to Elon Musk. He's not wealthy. There's so many wealthy people out there. No, he's just taking care of himself, right? Or he's just, just creating security. It doesn't stop. The search, the survival mode, once we achieve the next thing, if we live by the survival mode, we will keep expanding that. And in Luke 12, 34, the Bible reads, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It grows and it lies and it deceives and it tells you it's the most important thing. But James says, in order to receive the crown of life, we must be born by God in the word of truth, in the gospel. The renovation from the soul, from the gospel, is not a solely mystical thing. It is a gift that is given and received. So, so the gift is given, but I must hold out my hands to receive the gift. And the act of reception of that gift is fundamentally a heart change. If we are born of desire that leads to sin and death, then to be born of the gospel must lead to living by God's right way, what we call righteousness and life. And that means dying to what we believe is right in order to become more like Jesus. I'm gonna say that again. We have to die to what we believe is the right thing to do in any given situation if we want to become like Jesus. It's a complete statement. It's all-encompassing. Because we will lie to ourselves about what the right thing to do is. We need something from outside to come in. We need to die to the way of our own desire and our own survival modes in order to be birthed into a new life. And this is why the Christian faith is totally offensive. It's a completely offensive faith. It's offensive to every human being. This is not a faith offensive just to people that don't know Jesus. If I haven't offended you in some way, I don't think you're being totally honest with yourself. He's coming after you. He's coming for your desire for yourself. And he's going to strip it away. And that is the best thing that could ever happen to you. Jesus' ministry can be viewed through this lens and we can see how offensive his message is. And it was just as offensive then as it is now. 
Because the gospel, the word euangelion, which is the Greek word for gospel, is actually a declaration of kingship. It's a proclamation that says, the good news has come to town. We stretch out a banner. We've got like the trumpet. Do, 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 do. Here is the king, the good news. The good news is he's king. The good news is not that you get to do whatever you want for the rest of eternity because you're saved. The good news is there's a king in town now. And he has a way to live that actually works. It's actually the right way to do things. It's only good news, though. Okay, so guy rolls into town, pulls out the banner, rings the trumpet. Good news, this guy's king. And I go, not my king. Uh Uh-uh. Now I like my way. What are you doing in my town? Get out of here. I have a good setup. My family's well taken care of. My tribe is healthy and happy. Get out of here. We like it the way it is. And he goes, no, but, but this is good news. Peace on earth, good well toward men. No, I've got peace. I made peace. We, we made peace here. We're good. Right? It's offensive. This, this message should be pretty much offensive to all Americans. All Americans. Because we live by... The individualistic, pull myself up by my bootstraps, make my life, secure my future, secure my future for my children, whatever. And as soon as mine's secured, I got more work to do. Don't get me off my train of survival mode of making sure everything's taken care of. Control is what I need to have. And the ability, the freedom to pursue my own desires, which I'm getting ahead of myself. Matthew Bates wrote a book called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Now, if that's hitting you in a funny way, it should, because we all know that phrase. And that phrase usually goes salvation by faith alone, right? So chew on that for a second. If Jesus is king, then faith is allegiance. So what we're looking at with salvation by faith alone is not like I said the thing, I got the ticket, I get to do whatever I want. It is, I have a king. And I swear allegiance to him. Whether you're a Christian or not, the kind of allegiance to Jesus that he asks for is a wholehearted devotion to his way that flies in the face of our culture and our upbringing and any culture and any upbringing. Just as an illustration, what have we done away with in schools? I haven't heard my kids do this in PPS, public schools. Didn't you do this when you grew up? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the, we can't even do that anymore. We don't do that anymore. Isn't that kind of wild when you think about it? I mean, on one level, I've heard like a lot of Christians be like, yeah, it's great because we pledge allegiance to Jesus, right? No, actually, you know why we don't do it? Because we don't want to be allegiant to anything. We don't want the state to have us. We want all the benefits with none of the obligations. That is the culture we live in. And it's demonstrated by the fact that we can't even pledge allegiance to the flag for the country that protects us and that we live in and whose civil order we we, we supposedly subscribe to. We want all the benefits and none of the obligations. I'm allegiant to no one but myself is the message of modern culture, but not in the biblical story. If Jesus is savior and king, Jesus is both redeemer and a model citizen. Many of us know him as the savior, 
but much less imitate him as our role model. And our reaction, our offense at the fact that John would even have the gall to stand up here and get all intense about allegiance that I have to have now. Just that heart thing that's happening right now in your body shows the fatal defect of our own hearts. We don't want to give up our desire. And by the way, this is not a right, left, progressive, conservative. Every side of every part of the American population is totally in love with freedom, not as the means to a goal of goodness, but as the goal in and of itself. It doesn't matter if you're looking at freedom for Second Amendment rights or freedom for female reproductive rights. None of that matters. It's all a pursuit of what I say is the goal of freedom for me. And so individualism has become our inalienable right and self-discovery has become our best practice. I need to know what I think about every given thing so that I can decide what the right way is on every issue. And the way we've dealt with this in Portland is we've said, well, we just have a you do you culture, you know? Like, yeah, okay, we, we can get along if we have enough of those things in common, but if we don't like you do you, like, right? Just as long as you don't hurt anybody, right? And we think we can, we can stop there and that that will work out. And we think that that's total freedom. And we actually think that we have deluded ourselves. This is where our desires lie to us. We have deluded ourselves that we, in this human freedom project of unlimited self-expression and self-determination, that we are actually truly becoming free. But it's not true. Did you choose where you were born and to who, into what socioeconomic status, in what country. All of you here, I'm assuming most of you were born in America. You're certainly living in America now. What if you were born in Rwanda? Not even born in Rwanda. What if you were born in Rwanda in the year 1000? What ideals would you have? What ethics would you have? What pursuits would you be after? What would be the good life for you? It would be totally different than the life you're pursuing. We are not completely free to determine everything ourselves. It's a complete deception. So, so much for freedom and free will. Like so much of your life has been determined for you. And yet we think that the best thing is just to give up all boundaries and go full anarchy on everything. There's a movement right now in, in, on TikTok, but Gen Z movement is kind of driving this thing. I don't know if you've been, any of you have heard of it. It's called goblin mode. So the whole idea with goblin mode is people just post pictures of just anything. No makeup, no filters on the face, just wearing whatever I want, eating whatever I want. Like it's flaunting the idea that because wellness culture was so destructive, driven by the patriarchy, you know, completely about capitalism, ruining people, driving eating disorders, because of all of that, now the answer is to just rebel and like flaunt anti-wellness to just be completely unhealthy as like a sign of my independence and freedom, right? Every movement in culture says this happened in the 60s, it's happened every, it happened in the grunge movement in the 90s. This is what we do. We rebel against the status quo to search for something better, but eventually everybody has to build something. Eventually we just all, eventually you have to build. 
And Jesus says, build on the cross. Build on the cross. And you say, the cross, isn't that a weapon of death? Isn't that a weapon of death? John, I'm supposed to build on the cross. But I challenge you to say this. Guess what? When Jesus says, follow me, does he actually mean follow me? Where did Jesus go? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna honor it, celebrate it. Jesus went to the cross. And so when he says, follow me, he says, guess what? Luke 9, 23. He looks at his disciples, probably kind of like dumbfounded. Like, are you guys getting the message that I'm sharing? It sounds like you're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. You're, gonna, you're arguing about who's going to be at my right hand. Are you getting what I'm about to do? He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus is pointing to the death and he says, there is actually a wise death. There is a wise death that you're going to have to go through. We love to talk about birth. We love to talk about the new birth. Not so much the wise death. In his book, Becoming Human, Reverend Dr. John Barris says, death is the only thing I can be sure of, and therefore it's the only thing I must contemplate. And he basically goes on to say that most cultures, just ripe age, old death was just a matter of fact. That's just the way of life. Like death is not necessarily the enemy. It just is. Sure, everybody opposed tragic death. But it's not until the, the actual historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus, that death becomes sort of moralized, but it becomes actually a, a, a thing, an evil, an enemy. It's not just a matter of fact. This is actually something, why is it bad? Why is it bad? Not because it's coming for us. It's bad because God says there is a good way that will travel, that will pass you through it into new life. And so if you succumb to the fact that death is the final end for you, you've succumbed to a lie. And that's why it's bad. That's why it's wrong. Does that make sense, right? So when we live our life as if death is the true final full stop end to everything, we will live like the guy with the barns. We will just do it in some way because we truly think that ultimately at the end of everything is watch out for number one. And the whole message of the New Testament really is saying the resurrection changed everything. So Paul in Romans 6 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says it's available to everyone. So if you live your life in fear of death constantly, if all of your desires are built around trying to eke out of this existence what you can for yourself because death is the final end, then the reason that's bad is because you've succumbed to a lie. A biblical scholar, Walter Brueggemann, talks about death, and he says there's three uses of death in the Bible. One is biological, indicating the end of a life, historical life. The second is mythological. Death is sort of like a power agent or a principle. Death, like badness, right? And the third is symbolic, as the loss of a rich, joyous existence as willed by God. So let's flip all of those things. 
If eternal life is true on all three of those levels, which is what the New Testament espouses, if eternal life is not the end of your historical life, we actually will have moments of existence, just like now, into eternity, where we're conscious of them, where we have what what they call heavenly body. That's a thing. And if eternal life, like the crown of life, is mythologically true in the sense that it, it represents a power, an agent, or a principle, it is good. And if it's symbolically true in the sense that it means that we will have a rich, joyous existence as willed by God, then to live as if that's not real is, is not allegiant to the king. But that will destroy your categories for your life. It will upend things you've been building for a long time. It will hurt and be painful to say, if I truly am going to live forever, I don't have to pursue every hobby right now. If I truly am going to live forever, I don't have to get that bucket list figured out before I die. I heard a guy talk about an rever- uh, anti-bucket list, basically a reverse bucket list. He says, you should spend your life emptying your bucket list. So by the time, like just getting rid of those desires is what he meant. Not doing them. Not like, oh, I have a desire to go to Disney and I got to check off the list early. Now that, that's exactly the opposite of what he's saying. He's saying, just get rid of the bucket list. If by the time you retire, you have no bucket list, guarantee you, you'll be happier. Which I thought was just wild. That sounded painful. That sounded horrifying. That sounded like, no, I'm living. I'm doing this grueling work week to week, right? So that when I finally get to my retirement, I'll have fun. (laughs) So it's a lie. It's a total bogus lie. You can have that right now. If you live in allegiance to the king, if you can get out of survival mode. But we've inherited that for so long. We've lived in survival mode. Ancient cultures grew up with whole mythologies that the human beings were birthed out of like wars between the gods, or they were sort of like bastard children of the gods that didn't even deserve to exist. And everything was about fighting for humanity to even exist against the gods. Oh, they're angry. Oh, we got to do something. We're running. We're fighting. We're sacrificing. Like we just, we're trying to make a place for ourselves in this earth. And you can see that how that would be because if all you see is this earth, all you're trying to do is survive. Nobody's out there to help you. Nobody's there to protect you. And Paul says, this is sinful. Not because it's not understandable. It's totally understandable. But because it's an understanding built on a lie. And it's not the true nature of our existence as Christians. As Christians, we need not spend our existence focused on survival mode. So what do we do? Where do we go from here? Let's be honest. Even after we say, okay, Jesus, you showed me death is not the end. I actually believe you lived a life of faith and trusted in God, that his way prevailed and that you died and rose again. Even if I intellectually believe all of that, my desires are baked in deep. And I basically have a habit of living in survival mode. So to become allegiant to Jesus then is to do what he asked his disciples to do and carry their cross. My survival is no longer my primary concern. In fact, I am carrying the burden of of the cross on my back, just as Jesus did. And actually, the burden becomes light. 
because the cross no longer has power over me anymore. That cross will weigh on you. If you think Jesus is asking you to carry a cross, to take yourself to your own death, how could you possibly like that mean? Because when we hear carry our cross, what do we hear? John's telling me I need to be miserable to be a Christian. John's telling me I'm just gonna, he's gonna spring something on me that he wants me to do, that's gonna suffer, I'm gonna suffer, and he's gonna tell me that's good for me, right? <laughs> that, that's, what, that's what he's gearing up to do here, and that's what carrying our cross means. Oh, as Christians, I gotta carry my cross. That shows where our allegiance lies, and it shows our misunderstanding of this life. To practice our faith is to really believe that until we reach the end of ourselves and we say, I don't even totally get what carrying my cross means. The way of Jesus, when I live, it doesn't even make sense to me. And I'm just willing to admit it. This doesn't make sense. I look like a crazy person, right? Then you can start. There, you know, there's all those stories about the, the, the student who climbs the mountain to meet the sage, right? And he gets up to the top of the mountain. And what does the sage do a lot of times? He goes, you're not ready. He just won't even open the door. Student has to go all the way back down. Besides, he's ready. He comes back up again. Matt is still not ready. The walking up, the thinking we're ready, living our life to do this is part of the process to getting to teachability. Jesus says, I can't be your king if you're not willing to be taught. There's a whole story about this. It has to do with birth in John 3. Nicodemus, an intelligent Jewish teacher, says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He knows. Intellectually, he knows that Jesus is a miracle worker. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, unless one of you is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So will it be with everyone who is born of the spirit. What does Nicodemus have to die from? What does he have to die to? Knowing. Nicodemus has to go through a death. Jesus doesn't talk about the death, but he shows the death implicitly by saying, you've got to let the wind blow you. And Nicodemus, that's the last thing he wants. Nicodemus wants to know the plan. What's the job description? What do I get paid? What's the salary? What's the contract? How long does it last? Jesus says, none of it. I won't show you anything. Are you in or are you out? Do you believe I'm God? Do you believe I'm good? then the spirit's gonna blow you around and refine you and teach you, and then you're gonna be ready. Are you ready to be born again? I, I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm super intense about this, but like, as I've lived as a Christian, I just realized the, the bill of goods that is sold around the new birth, just mystically reinventing everything for you is childish. Because the reality is Jesus is always way more intense about it than that. What does he say to the rich young ruler? He says, okay, you know it. Go sell everything and follow me. There is always an action involved. There's always a cost. There's always a sacrifice. And in half of Jesus' ministry, he encounters people who know better. And he shows them they don't know better. 
And then worse, he shows them that they don't even uphold the values they espouse to hold up. They don't walk the talk. Have you ever thought of this? You probably wouldn't have liked Jesus. Like we're all people raised in our culture. We're all Americans with with Portland juju running deep in our veins, right? If we had walked up and this guy had walked up and he's told us, you got to do it my way. I don't know. You might not have liked Jesus. You might have said, that's really cool, but you're asking too much. I like all these miracles. You do, it does seem like something's going on here. Gosh, I really, I'm torn, but like you're asking too much. Because we are wealthy. Because we have not reached the end of ourselves. And so Jesus says, come to me, lay at my feet, reach the end of yourselves. I am both savior and model. Jesus is the most attractive person ever. Why? Because he's the anti-hypocrite. Because he is a person full of integrity, even to his death. He's a person you can trust to be true to his word because he showed that he did it all the way to a death on the cross that he carried. The Romans made them carry themselves. And the model that he gives us of living whole and good is the crown of life. And he wore the crown of thorns. And that crown of thorns was the crown that he used to live true to the life of God. Now, I am not saying that we wear our own crown of thorns to save ourselves. I'm saying that Jesus gives us a way to imitate He has opened the door and broken through for us. But to pass through, we must go through the death he went through. We must go through a death to our own desires and give up to complete trust and faith in the Father that he will lead us into wholeness. So I'm going to do things a little bit differently today. I'm praying at a weird spot here. I'm going to pray for a second. And I'm going to lead us into communion. And I just want to get us through to the rest of this because I know this is really intense to hear. And I want to shake us all up a little bit. And I want, as I'm praying, I'm going to, I'm going to lead us through a few questions. So I'm going to just ask those right now to you really quick. Where do you find yourself in survival mode? When I said... I mean, you're in survival mode. Where is it that you hold on to things? Where is it you get defensive? Is there a place where you get poked, where you enter survival mode, where you retreat? Where are you self-focused? Where have your thoughts been this week? How are you consumed with the outcome of your life? And how is that distracting you? And I would just encourage you to say, God, I accept. I can't do it all in this life. I can't accept death. And you didn't either. But you traveled through it. Teach me to believe that you are my only survival. I'm just going to pray for a moment. God, this, this idea of a wise death and a good birth is, sounds nice. Sounds good. Does sound like your way. But God, I know that there's things in my own heart right now that you're coming after that you want me to die to so that I'll be wise. And I know it's going to be hard. God, if, as we in this room, if we pray now, we have the choice to pray to welcome you in. If we pray these words, we welcome you in, Jesus, to refine my life. If I pray that right now, God. I pray that you give me the strength to keep going as you do that. 
I pray that you would help me see that the desires that lead to death are truly poisonous and toxic. I pray that you would wipe those out for me, that I would identify them as bad. God, I pray that you would, you would lead me as a good, loving God into wholeness in your way, that you would show me the goodness and the joy from imitating you. God, I pray your blessing on everybody in this room as we wrestle with these things. I pray for companionship. I pray for wholeness. Amen.